Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Dina Falcone, an herbalist from the Hudson Valley of New York and author of the gorgeous book, Foraging and Feasting, which you'll find at botanicalartspress.com. During our conversation today, Dina shares her background as a forager and herbalist and her beginnings as a permaculture practitioner, which started with a design course taught by Jeff Lawton. We also discuss the plants she chose for the book, the difference between edible and culinary plants, and the distinction of historical versus modern food safety. This interview is part of the ongoing series about rewilding and foraging. I have links to the earlier episodes in the show notes. Start with this interview and work your way back through that archive of podcasts to learn more about wild foods, edible plants, and how we can improve the gifts we receive from them and our relationships with those plants. Now then, on to Dina Falcone. I'll join you afterwards with some thoughts and updates. And Dina, if you could provide us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to the world of foraging and producing your book, Foraging and Feasting. I am an herbalist, and it's a pursuit I've had for the last, oh, 25 years. It's been the focus of my life. And before that, when I was a kid, I was turned on to the idea that food is my medicine, so that was as an 11-year-old, a man named Mickey Carter, who was uh, a neighborhood kind of benevolent kind of mentor. He turned me on to this idea that food is my medicine. And from that point, at 11 years old, I made this commitment to pursue the foods that were most healing. Um, and that led me to herbal medicine and to, and to foraging. I wrote a first book in 1990, it was published in 97, called Earthly Bodies and Heavenly Hair, which is an exploration on making all your own personal care products. And that book was really requested by the publisher who put it out. But from that book, it made me realize, oh, I could, I could write a book. Because <laughs> I, I, I hadn't considered myself a writer. But the book that I really wanted to write was this book called Foraging and Feasting. I mean, I love earthly bodies, but the book Foraging and Feasting is, is more to the core of who I am and the things that I value. And so this book, Foraging and Feasting, was published in 2013, July of 2013. And it's an incredible feat from my perspective because I was the visionary for it. I had been gathering the information for a good 20-plus years, and I then self-published. So it, I took it from the vision idea stage all the way to actual production and, and the shipping. And along the way, I, I, my partner, the illustrator of the book uh, named Wendy Hollander, she and I co-published it, and she worked with me on the visual. She's an incredible illustrator, and, but she doesn't know the, the wild plants or that much about the content of the book, so she was willing to do the work with me and create the, the visual maps, I call them, so that people can really learn the plants from a visual perspective, not just through language, not just you know through sort of these field guides that are really concise and tight. So that's a little background. I don't know. Do you have more questions? One of the things that interests me is herbal medicine. And one of the early books that I had was, I, oh, I'm trying to remember the title. I think it's Indian Herbology of North America was one of the first books that really turned me on to the use of plants. And then it was later the work of Stephen Herod Buner. And I think it was, what is it? Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers. 
I'm drawing from memory, so if these are incorrect, I'll they're make correct. sure that they're Alma good Hutchins. in the show notes. Yep, Alma Hutchins was your yeah. first one. That's the author, the Native American. Yes. Yep. And then, you know, reading the books of Yule Gibbons when I was a child, being a Boy Scout, and then realizing later how many plants I'd been taught incorrectly. <laughs> I, I posted some pictures to the Facebook page for the podcast one day, identifying something as dandelions, and they weren't. They were one of the related similar plants. And I'm just wondering, like, what was your educational background to make that transition from food as medicine to becoming an herbalist. I'm not familiar with like the formal paths for that, if there are any. So is there some kind of like a an apprentice program or a recognized certification? When I was going into the field, there was really not a whole lot that was accredited or anything, meaning you, you, you really had to make up the educational journey for yourself. And that's what I did. So this would be in the mid-80s and... I found a woman in our in my area here, and she had just begun doing an apprenticeship program that a friend and I took. So it was two of us doing this class monthly. So with this particular herbalist, her name is Pam Montgomery, she, let's see, I, I worked with her for two years, and then I actually became the medicine maker for her company at the time so that I was foraging and then medicine making. And that extended, I'd say maybe another year and a half. So Pam was a, an early influence in what I would call the folk medicine approach, the folk herbal medicine approach. Wonderful woman. Um, and then I wanted to become more, how would you say, hmm, more skilled at, at diagnosis and, and customizing protocols. So customizing blends and, and uh, helping someone to create an appropriate program for them specifically. Whereas the folk medicine, the herbal approach that's called the folk way is very wonderful and enriching and great, but it's not always so specific. And when people start asking me, well, what would I do for this and what would I do for that? I would want to um, really custom blend. Do you know what I mean? Not like a one-size-fits-all, here, this shirt can fit everybody, but let's really, really tailor this to exactly who you are. So that training came um, after much, it wasn't anything, nothing was available at the time that at least from what I could see. And the man that was suggested I go study with from other herbalists who I highly respected, his name is William Lasassier, was William, he passed away. So William became my mentor in clinical training, but he wasn't offering a class. So I had to sort of push my way into his life and it worked out well, <laughs> but he was the one that really gifted me with the, I guess in a way, the skill set to approach diagnosis and then custom blend, so formulations. At that time also I began, I had a company already making my own body care products, selling body care products to a very, very small cottage industry. And then after Williams training, I partnered with Jeans Greens to produce a line of medicinal tinctures, which were ironically, you know, created for a generic audience. So the opposite of what I was doing was trying to custom blend for unique individuals. And then I was formulating, you know, these 18 blends that could be used by anybody. But anyway, I had the training with William really, um, which lasted two and a half years, just a tutorial between, between he and I, that actually brought me to a certain confidence level, but also a realization that, you, that I really didn't know anything. Like that the more that you learn about healing, the less that you know. And that was kind of crazy because I realized 
oh, well, I'm just, you know, I wanted to, I set out on this journey to become, you know, confident in the outcome of what I would choose. And in fact, that's not the case when you work with healing. It makes you, in a sense, much more humble, realize. And William said that. He's like, you know, we don't really know anything. I mean, the journey is about practice. You are practicing. It's a mystery. So anyway, that that gives you a little bit of a background. I mean, along the way, it's all self-study as well, just so you, you know you know that. It's the passion of the subject and then the continual pursuit about, you know, information. And part of the work that I do as a clinical herbalist is dietary. So a big part is food as medicine. And um, for me, it's a, there's a, a broad overlap between, let's see, the medicinal tincture is one thing, like golden seal really is not a food. But then there's lots of um, herbal medicines that are also really food, and like nettle, for example, or dandelion, or burdock, or et cetera, so many that are really tonic foods. So when I work with clients, I bring in the herbal medicine training, um, which, again, it's an accumulation of those many, many years and these intensive mentors that I had, but it also includes working with food as healing, which is knowledge I've been collecting since I was a preteen. So there's that component. And I do want to talk more about the book, but I have one more question before we turn it back around. Is in your biography on the book, it also says that you're a permaculturist. Is that also from a place of self-study or did you take a PDC and get involved that way? I was really lucky to have landed where I live, which is in the Mid-Hudson Valley and in the in the middle of the 2005, I believe it was, or 2006, we had Jeff Lawton come here. So he visited here for, I think it was two or three years, and we had a PDC just a few miles from my house. So he was my teacher. So what happened is the community was gifted, in a sense, his, you know, his visits, and we got tuned into permaculture. And I realized, though, that I had been practicing permaculture because I have no dig gardens, you know, my whole approach is permacultural. And so when he came to the area and I went to the presentation, I think it was an evening, and then, you know, then you would sign up for the PDC or whatever, I realized, oh, this is my religion. This is where I live already. (laughs) You know, this is, it was like, oh, this is a word for what I already connect to. And so Jeff, he was really a huge inspiration. You know, he, he came to the Hudson Valley, I think it was three years, and I, and I got to tune into all of the programming that came through this area, and we have a lot of permaculture presence here now. It's, it's great. And, uh, yeah, so I do, I have my PDC technically, tra- you know, trained, <laughs> certified. But, you know, I, don't, I am a permaculturalist from a deep place of, of understanding, not so much just from the certification, because that wasn't really that important to me. It was more like, oh, I need to go to these classes because this is, this is what gives me inspiration. This is where I am. You know, this is what I resonate with. And on so many levels, because I think also being an herbalist, in the way that I am anyway, it is the same as permaculture. It's whole system thinking. You know, it's thinking about healing from a whole systems approach. And also being a forager is all about you know, linking right into the ecosystem that surrounds you. And that's the most permacultural practice that, you know, we could perform, I believe, you know, one of them. So, and the idea that, oh, all of these hidden, almost considered pests or these waste streams of, of nature are gifts. And that's the same with all the weeds, you know. 
the weeds which we tried to kill, uh, herbicide with billions of dollars of, you know, nasty, toxic stuff. When you realize that those plants are your medicine and your food, oh my God, you know, so it's turning around the thinking. It's like, okay, here's your problem, right? What is that that little story with permaculture, the problem is the solution. It's like, okay, we have all these invasive species and, you know, they're the problem. No, actually, they're the solution, you know. <laughs> so on so many levels, the permaculture thinking resonates with me. And I've been an, an instructor, too, with different programs in our area for permaculture. And I have people who are in permaculture programs that visit here to see what's going on. It's fun. It's fun to host folks. You're really involved in this world in a very complete way, and I really appreciate hearing about that. Before I take us too far down the permaculture road, as that's very much my background, I was wondering in looking through your book and the plants that you've included, why did you choose the plants that you did to put in the book? There are many um, reasons, but I would say the first thought that comes to mind is I put plants in that are extremely abundant, some of them invasive, uh, many of them are weeds in the temperate you know, zones of the world. I wanted to be a book that was about universal weeds and ones that aren't going to um, become endangered by us eating them. In fact, we need to be eating them. So that was the, that was the goal. But I also snuck in some odd things like Shizandra chinensis is in there, the Shizandra berry, because I grow it here. My garden. This book reflects a little bit a little bit about my my garden and the permaculture approach to foraging in a sense. So you can put in something like Shizandra, which I feel like a lot of permies are putting in. They don't know how to use it. They just put these plants in. So that's a plant that I really love that I have in the garden that acts invasive. And so it's something to celebrate. And then I also wanted to turn people on to how to use it. So recipes are featured in it. So I, the, one of these under how would you say, hidden themes is to speak to the permaculture community. The same thing with all the ribes. I feature a lot of ribes in here. Some of them are there really to celebrate the plants that permies are planting, but they don't know how to use. So it's bringing home the garden design in a sense. And, and I feel like permaculture gardens are really an extension of wild gardens. And so it fits right in with how I was envisioning this book you know, that it would be both foraged and cultivated, even though it's really more, much more about wild plants. I stuck in a couple of those, you'll see. <laughs> comfrey is another example, for example. It's something, the comfrey is something that maybe is pretty prolific and wild, but Permies really put it in and they don't know how to cook with it. You know, they don't know how to use it. So I was excited by that, the ability to share that information and cross it over to that comfrey is also wild and has a lot of herbal medicine use and, and stuff like that. But yeah, so the, the plants that I chose are plants that hopefully they can be found everywhere and they're not in danger of being eradicated when humans acknowledge them and start to eat them. And the palate needed to be broad so that I could create a delicious cookbook from them. So I needed to have enough of the aromatics in the book and enough of, of the delicious fruits for desserts or drinks and the hearty greens. Um, and then also some of the, uh, I pushed the edge of food in the book as well to therapeutic spirits, I call them, where you're going to make some of your own elixirs, your digestive bitters, and things like that. So I, I needed to also have a good selection of plants of those invasive types that we could produce a full menu of food with. One of the plants that surprised me when I was looking through here was bee balm, uh, Monarda, because that I did not know was edible. 
I like to sit in my garden and smell it when it's in bloom, but I've never tried to eat it. The Monarda didyma, are you speaking of the red-blooming bee balm or the, the Monarda fistulosa, the lavender one? Didyma, the red. The red. Yes, yeah, so the red one a lot of permaculture folks will put in, but they don't realize not only is it beneficial to all of our, you know, it's, it's considered an insectary, right, or a nectar producer, but it's actually a, a good medicine and a nice culinary food, you know, the way that we would use tarragon or thyme, so you wouldn't make a whole salad with it, but you would pinch in a little bit of it, or you would put those beautiful blossoms, use them as a garnish for cake even, or, you know, for an omelet. Yeah, so that's kind of what excites me is, okay, we're putting things in, but that whole idea of function, you know, there's so much more function that so many people aren't aware of, and I wanted the book to speak to that, because that's been my life journey is like, whoa, you know, this is here, this you can do with that? Oh my, you know, like uh, the uncovering, the mystery which lives with us that we've lost the connection to is so uncovering those stories, uncovering those connections. And there are so many stories in here about these different plants and not only their uses, but also the change between the historical and the modern. As you mentioned, comfrey is something that we can cook with, but the change in the FDA's consideration of it as food and its safety Yes, you're absolutely right, and that's part of the confusion. It's, you know, it's, it's an issue we have as herbalists that all of a sudden all the plants we've been eating forever are now being considered toxic or something, you know? So there's a, a big discussion about that, and in, in the page on comfrey in the book, I address it hopefully in a graceful way so that it's empowering and still educational, but also modern in a sense, you know, giving you the modern scoop on it, basically. But that doesn't mean that's the truthful aspect. It was, I just finished reading Greg Marley's uh, Chantreau Dreams and Amanita Nightmares, and it's part of that discussion in there, the distinction between some things that have been eaten for ages and ages in moderation versus some of the modern uses where we might overindulge in something and that that overindulgence is the difference between something being safe and something being toxic. Absolutely. And, but in the case with comfrey, it's even more extreme than that because we're not going to be eating the huge amounts of comfrey, at least I don't think we could, that would make us sick in any way. It's the isolating of a compound. So what's happening with modern medicine or with scientific inqu inquiry of today is you're able to break down a plant into its individual constituents. So you're taking something outside of, the co of its context and then you're able to inject that compound in huge you know in huge quantities that w it would never be that way in real life so yes there are toxic compounds in comfrey but how much would you have to eat of that comfrey to even or, or it would never even be the same scenario because you would never eat it in isolation the alkaloid the pyrolizidine alkaloid or pas are what are considered toxic in comfrey we could never isolate that and eat it individually so it's it's a very different issue. But anyway, so it adds to the confusion. Maybe it's helpful, but maybe not. I don't know. It was something that came up in a conversation with the herbalist from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Sarah Preston, as part of my permaculture design course, was the distinction between a whole plant versus an isolated compound. And that very often the whole plant has other compounds within it that would mitigate some of the side effects. Or perhaps it's just because the quantities of some of those 
compounds in the whole plant are considerably lower as a percentage of weight or volume relative to what we might consume as opposed to having it dried and taken in a pill form or turned into some kind of pharmaceutical? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the point that we can't in nature, we don't in nature isolate compounds meaning I'm going to eat comfrey leaf, I'm going to eat the whole leaf. It's hard to comment because to be thorough, we need to do all of these different isolating tests and things. Basically, if we're going to approach it scientifically, we need to isolate the comfrey leaf and discuss all of the different constituents. And anyway, it's it's like a, a quagmire that you enter into. I think that the bigger issue is that we have toxic chemicals you could probably isolate isolate a toxic compound in almost everything that we eat. And the issue is that we would never eat it in isolate form. And so in nature, it comes in this whole web of interactions. And usually, if a food's been eating eaten like comfrey has been, we can assume that there's a level of safety there. So if we you know, pull a string out of comfrey and find that strand has toxicity, well, it's, it's not reflective of what's real. It's just that simple. You know, you take a strawberry, I'm sure you can find some toxicity, you know, and if you isolate it and inject it in huge amounts, that could be toxic, whatever, some constituent. Um, I think even antioxidants, which are considered beneficial in large quantities, are very, very toxic. So when we isolate and concentrate, we're just not talking about the same thing anymore. And this is also distinct because we're talking about plants that historically and within certain cultures have been eaten for hundreds, if not thousands of years, as opposed to something that we know is toxic, like hemlock. Oh, of course, yeah. This is something that you can't eat because it is very dangerous, as opposed to this is something that could pose a danger to someone with, say, renal issues, you know, degraded kidney function or something like that, perhaps they shouldn't eat something that contains certain compounds. But otherwise, for someone who's reasonably healthy, including a little bit of it in a salad or on a sandwich or something is not going to cause any issues. There's a few things that come to mind. As a, as a, as a practitioner working with clients, I don't use any of the, quote, toxic plants. So comfrey is not in, used internally at all for clients. I use it still topically a lot. And then I can educate somebody about comfrey and they can make that choice. So that's one thing is I have the responsibility because I live in this modern day. This is what we know. So this is what I share, right? However, when I teach classes, I push the edge more and discuss the issue and then offer the option of eating, let's say, an omelet or frittata, which has comfrey leaf in it. So we'll discuss it as a class and make that decision if we're going to do it. So those are two different approaches. And then for my own life, I will eat that comfrey leaf as much as I feel like it, you know, because of my experience having eaten it for many years before the FDA warning came. However, what you're saying is it brings fear in and maybe it's appropriate, and, but it's not a clear answer. You know, it's not a clear answer. And if somebody, like for example, you brought up the bee balm, which is a wonderful plant for culinary use, meaning uh, culinary aromatic use, but you would never eat a salad of that. It would give you a bad stomach ache and probably be mildly, quote, toxic, whatever that means. So the same way you wouldn't eat a salad of oregano, right? This is another culinary herb. We sprinkle it about because it adds flavor and it has medicinal value. But again, it's that issue with how to use the plants properly. So there's the issue of isolating a strand of a plant and saying this particular compound is toxic, therefore don't touch that plant. Well, I have, a, you know, I have question marks that follow that comment. Really? I don't know. And then the other thing is that we have plants that we eat, but we don't want to eat them in large quantities because they're too potent. 
So we eat them in smaller amounts, just the way oregano is eaten, or else it becomes an irritant and trouble, you know, can cause trouble. So it's also a question of knowing the plants that are out there and how do we prepare them, how do we eat them. You know, so it's it's the language that has been lost, you know, of how do we ID the plants, first of all, and then properly consume them. We've lost that knowledge, and now we're putting on top of that this issue with, you know, all these isolates, and, and they're all coming back with toxicity, you know. So there's the la- that we have a certain kind of amnesia or, you know, we've lost the wisdom, and now we're coming back to the subject with this modern approach of dissecting a plant and isolating compounds and finding toxicity, and then we really become more alienated. So I feel like that's where we, we, we are in time. And so foraging and feasting, the book theme is to bring back the power to celebrate what's been there and teach people how to use it with, you know, gentle uh, cautionary notes and things. And so we can begin to navigate those those waters again, learn that language again. And, and from what you just shared, I realized that I need to work on my language and understanding of this for a little bit more clarity because of that distinction that you made between like something that we might use in a salad or as a pot herb versus something that has a culinary distinction. Because I'm just thinking about like the herbs and spices that I have sitting, as you mentioned, oregano. There's a lot of that that I would not just put on a spoon and eat by the ounce. Exactly. But are very good in a dish. And that that's a very important part of our development of these different plants as food and as medicine and to come to have a knowledge of them is understanding the distinction between something that we might harvest in quantity to fill a salad bowl versus those things that would just be an addition to, to add a particular, you know, aroma or flavor to what it is that we're consuming. And what you're describing is is right on. So we're out there with the salad bowl and we're going to fill that salad bowl up with some of those milder greens and, you know, really more um, consumable like chickweed or malva, neglecta, you know, like the common mallow. Or I'm just thinking violet leaves. Those can really fill up the salad. I have a wonderful wild lettuce like tuca canadensis, which grows here, uh, you know, just arrived and I'm always so happy. And so that can go into my salad in quantity. It's not a very bitter while lettuce, and then I'll go around and I'll look for my accents, and I'm going to go and find uh, what little bits of what do I want to augment the flavors and add medicinal value because these are the potent medic- these are full of antioxidants. These are full of the bioflavonoids, or like if you sprinkle some of that um, Monarda didyma, you know the bee balm, the red bee balm flowers on there, you're going to get a hit of color and flavor full of antioxidants, but you wouldn't make an entire salad of that. You could take a little bit of that Monarda leaf and mince it up and sprinkle it in and it's just a beautiful thing. It adds a nice digestive quality, so it, it helps us to digest our food. And so it's kind of, that's all, that's the game, you know, that's the culinary game in a sense is learning, learning how to mix and match. It's literacy, it's relearning what we've lost, the language of foraging and and then how to prepare that foraged food into really delicious dishes. And that's that's also my passion. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to make that really tasty. And so gill over the ground, which is a cursed, you know, glaucoma heteraceae, that's a cursed weed. People hate that weed. And I understand it, but it's got so many gifts, and it needs to be used wisely. So in the book, there's a beautiful um, uh, marinated grain salad 
section, and you can, it's kind of a take on a tabbouleh, you know, but it, I don't even want to limit it to that. But instead of using parsley, you're using gill over the ground and flour with millet, and you're marinating it, and it's so delicious. But you need that millet. You need that soft, bland partner to blend the flavor of that pretty sh- sharp, aromatic, bitter gill, right? And you need a a lot of beautiful olive oil and vinegar. So it's an incredible salad that you're eating one of these invasive, nasty weeds. It isn't that nasty weed. I mean, to me, it's a lovely weed, but from the perspective of most homeowners or whatever, gardeners even. Anyway, so that's the idea is learning how to use it. So, But if you were to put gill over the ground into a salad bowl and you had too many leaves of gill with not enough of a buffer of something bland and soft, it's not appealing. You just don't want to eat that salad. So that you could turn someone off to foraging by that, you know, producing a salad full of gill over the ground leaves. You know, it's not a good idea. And I don't remember who it, who it was or where I read it, but someone was talking about dandelion leaves, that if they're, you know, kind of old and tough, they can be very bitter and completely turn somebody off to dandelion as a, as a forageable as opposed to harvesting those young and early. I was just going to say, yes, exactly. Timing is everything here. But if you've got big dandelion leaves, you can still use them. But you would cook them first, and then you would marinate them again. Like, you can you can forge big dandelions, but then you need to prepare them differently than if you're, buy, than if you're buying. I mean, if you're finding the nice little tender um, new growth leaves, those can go into a salad. They're very appealing. Some people can't handle the bitter flavor, though, so you don't want to put in as much of that for those, you know, or very little for those people. So... You also consider who your consumer is, you know, who's going to be eating that salad. And you can custom blend, again, your salad based on who you're feeding. If you're feeding a large crowd, you're going to a potluck, you don't want to make a salad necessarily full of dandelion leaves, you know, not at all. You might mince up a little bit of the dandelion leaf, mix it in with blander greens. Like, again, the chickweed or the violet are beautiful bland. In my mind, they work for me as nice bland leaves. I'm trying to think of other ones. You know, lamb's quarter is a delicious salad green. That's another nice bland one. I mean, bland meaning, it's not bland relative to lettuce. Lettuce meaning store-bought lettuce, that's really bland, even though I love good organic lettuce. All these wild greens have a much stronger flavor, but meaning bland that they're not too bitter or too aromatic or too pungent to, to make someone who's unfamiliar with extreme flavors to keep them from getting turned off, you know? One of the things that I like about the cooking section, the kitchen arts section, is that as someone with celiac disease, you mention some of the gluten-free options under your flowers, uh, which is always very nice to see. But I also like the approach that you take that there's a mix of foraged and bought ingredients for someone who wants to just start down this road, that you don't just grab your field guides and go out and start harvesting all wild and begin eating 100% forage that you can blend what it is that you're already doing and slowly introduce foraged foods in a more useful way than some of the other material that I've seen that is just kind of like a, here's a book about how to eat this, go have fun. You give us all kinds of recipes and ways that we can try these different things. Exactly. You hit a really important point, which is I wanted the cookbook to be empowering so that you could use what's available. Hopefully that you're going to be excited and inspired to go find some of the wild greens, but also that if if you don't have those wild greens at hand, you can still make that frittata or that gratin or the marinated grain salads with with store-bought or garden-grown ingredients. So it's not going to dead-end you like some recipe cookbooks where it's 
it's just limited to what the ingredients are at hand, you know, the ingredients that are listed. Here, it's actually, I was hoping, and I, I feel like it's successful in that way, that people will be inspired to engage with whatever they have access to, not to be dead-ended by the recipe, but actually to understand technique, understand recipe formatting, and then substitution so you can play. I definitely didn't want to shut the book down in any direction. I wanted to just celebrate and get people back into the kitchen, right? So I want people to, the same feeling of the, the food, the plant literacy, it's kitchen literacy. It's getting people back into the kitchen, cooking something up. Okay, so you, you don't have any gill over the ground, that's okay. You can put pinches of thyme in or you can, you know, use parsley if you don't have sweet sicily or you can use Swiss chard instead of the lamb's quarter or, you know, if you're not going to make the pesto with, I have all these amazing wild green pesto choices in there, then you can do some with your cultivated options, you know. You can, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of that, too, is helping people to understand how to translate. So when you're learning new plants, new wild edibles, how might they relate in the scheme of, of cultivated plants? And that's kind of part of the fun there with helping to make those connections for people. I grew up in a kitchen cooking like crazy when I was a young child until I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And there's this period that I remember in my childhood where we went from a lot of scratch-made foods from whole ingredients to more and more packaged and prepared foods as my parents both worked more and I was out of the house where it was this whole, okay, we're together, we just need to eat. And there are so many skills that I feel that I've lost from it being in the kitchen that there have been times when I'm I'm looking at a recipe and I just reach a certain point and I'm like, I don't have this, I can't cook it. And then it's like looking for another recipe that includes exactly what I have rather than trying to improvise. And I think that this is, I like the theme and variation that you use with the recipes that you give us this master idea of how to start with something and then include, you know, different extras or different ways to try something. And among the pestos, I have to say that one of my favorite things that I see you using is garlic mustard because it grows in my yard like crazy. And you mentioned garlic mustard and it's so useful in so many different ways. But again, you know, you need to know how to use it or you could really potentially turn people off because it's very strong in flavor, you know, so it's it's one of those that you would use one-fifth of, for example, in a salad. You wouldn't use it as the primary ingredient, but maybe, you know, or maybe a quarter of the salad would be made up of it, and you would mince it. So, But again, if you're a lover of bitters, then you might have a whole salad of it, you know. And also, what you were saying, though, before about the recipes and something to do with the master recipes, yes, that, you know, again... It has to do with empowering the reader to understand technique and skill. Skill is pushing it. It's just like basic steps. You know what the basic steps are and what the ratios of things are. So you become an educated cook. And then you have the freedom. As a permaculture person, right, as as somebody who grows food or forages for food, you need to have the basic templates of master recipes so you can plug in all that moves through the growing season. You know, it's not a static reality, and that's the beauty of it. You know, you want to have those baseline master recipes that, oh, yes, this is the green now that comes in. We'll plug that in. Or this is the wild fruit that comes in. Great. We'll make the syrup with that now you know, that will become the agua fresca. We're going to put that 
fruit. This is August now. Okay, that's going to be the ice cream flavor. So you're using, you have your classic, I put 100 master recipes in, you know, everything from beverages to desserts and things in between like ketchup and, you know, so you have a, a master ketchup recipe and you can make autumn olive ketchup or you can make blueberry ketchup or you can, if you don't have anything wild at the time, but you have peaches in your neighborhood, you can make a peach ketchup or you can make a pear ketchup, you know. The idea, too, for me is in life, I feel like it's a bigger issue where we need a certain a certain skill set to spring off from. So we need to be able to have the skills that let us then become creative, let us integrate what comes through our lives, what's available to us. You know, we have the skills to utilize the, the gifts that arrive. And they're forever, un, there's an unpredictability, and that that's what I think makes foraging and this kind of lifestyle really rich and exciting, unlike the American way of life, which is very, very predictable. You're looking for the exact same package and the exact same thing shaped exactly the same way. Well, that's not this kind of food. I think of it as like the dandelion revolution or the foraging and feasting revolution. It's basically where gifts are arriving and we need to learn how do we utilize them? How do we receive them? And how do we thrive with them? Not give me only what I know exactly the same way every day for the rest of my life. I hope that's making sense. No, it does because it touches on this this theme that I'm running with right now because of doing these interviews about foraging and rewilding. There's just this little line that keeps running through my head is that we need to rewild ourselves, practice permaculture and be free. And with that is coming this idea that there are these certain, almost if you will, master skills that each of us should have in order to be able to do that. Part of that being able to forage for food. The other piece being able to cook because of how much cooking allows us to really open up what it is that's available to us to eat and is part of that basic idea of just being able to feed ourselves and be able to take care of ourselves, and in doing so, we can help to feed others. Again, my childhood comes to mind, remembering my one grandmother's house. My my mother was one of 12, and in my grandmother's house, we would all come together, and once you were, you know, of table height as a child, you were cooking in some way, whether that was, you know, helping measure things out that uh, my aunt could put into something or running with my uncles to go get something that was needed and then opening packages with them of meats and things to prepare or running between the counter and the grill or something like that. That food was a big familial event that brought us together and everybody was a part of it. And that in itself is beautiful. That's at the heart of life, you know, that activity sharing, creating, nourishing, being interdependent. Like, you know, there, there's a connectedness there. There's a very real experience that's happening and that's going to be feeding you all you know that's seriously real good stuff (laughs) it's so simple so straightforward but back to the idea of utilizing what arrives right that's skill set we need so here this arrives how do we understand how to eat it or how do we prepare it that is from the food point of view that is a metaphor for everything in life but so the things that arrive how do we utilize them and part of the foraging and feasting book is to hopefully empower people you know so they have real really good visual plant maps to plant id and then very very clear step-by-step recipes to plug those plants in again but that the, the step-by-steps aren't limiting, you know, they should be empowering. But there's another thought that comes to mind too, not exactly related to the theme of plants, but we get, we have chickens here on the land. 
they're part of our little permaculture world. Um, they live amongst the trees, the fruiting trees and shrubs in an acre area, and so they fertilize that particular spot on the land so well. I mean, the fruit production is incredible there. But we end up having to cull roosters. We we hatch our own chickens here, and, and of course, 50% are usually males, so we keep only so many males. And so we need to be able to cook those males to utilize that gift, these roosters. And also, once we usually have a lot of old lady hens, but then to be efficient, we need to cull some of them. So we're needing to process these chickens that are coming from, you know, part of our activity here. And this is something that I learned that I felt was never discussed. How do you use those old woody, woody chickens and and those woody roosters? You know, they're not a genetic, they don't have the genetics, first of all, that are are soft and tender. And then also the hens are quite old. So they're, they're all tough birds here. And so the technique that I've discovered, and I can't even trace back exactly how it came to be, but these birds become delicious, succulent stews, but you need to long cook them. You rarely bring them to a boil, and then you poach them at about 150 degrees, 145 to 150, and you keep them going for about two days or sometimes three days. Nobody talks about that anymore. You know, it's not part of of modern eating, but... These, you know, these woody, dense, hard birds become, you know, gorgeous, delicious stock and tender flesh. Like, because for years we would try to boil that tough bird and it would just become tougher and tougher. And so we kind of just gave up and said, well, they're just going to be for stock, which of course is still really useful. But then a couple of years ago, this discovery of the slow, slow poach and you 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 unravel this toughness into tender it's pretty wild tasting stuff you know it has a wildness to it but anyway so just relating to that idea of you know that skill i'm sure someone knew this 100 years ago you know it's a slow slow poach you got to give it two sometimes three days and then you have a beautiful meal we don't hear that anymore there's no discussion around that <laughs> so Anyway, it's an aside. You made me think of skills that we need in order to utilize the gifts that arrive. Well, it's right now, you know, we can go to a grocery store and buy all this prepackaged anonymous meat in exactly the cut we would want, exactly the age and everything, all these animals that have been bred for a specific slaughter, as opposed to going, okay, what do I have and what can I do with it? And those genetics are exactly the same. You're eating the same bird who's being fed the same feed. You know, the formulated feed are very similar. It's a very, very narrow food that you're eating. You know, it's very limited. And these birds that we have are wild. They're essentially like a wild flock. I mean, they have their their chicken coop, but they mimic a wild flock. And they are fed an organic feed, so it's not fair to say they're truly wild. It feels so reassuring to know, well, This is the gift that we get from having, you know, this kind of homestead. And instead of just throwing those out, which most people do, you know, or or making stock and then throwing out the meat part, which can also become delectable, you know, used in burritos, tortillas, et cetera, stews, you know, soups and so on. Just in my own life, we don't raise any animals here, but there's a local farmer's market that we often purchase from, and there are a lot of offcuts of meat and weird ends and things that don't make it into one meal or another that provide a lot of opportunity just, you know, pulling out a crock pot or a Dutch oven and cooking it low and slow or different ways. And there is one other comment that I wanted to make about the book that I found really empowering for me is that because you chose to go with illustrations rather than pictures, there's something about that 
that makes walking through the identification section so much nicer because at least for me in the way that my brain works from all kinds of years of IT, I'm used to very linear progressions and binary kind of trees to choose from. If it looks like this, then it's this. If there's this occurring, then this is the problem, this is the fix. Whereas if I work from a field guide that has a picture, I take that photograph and put it in my head and that's what I begin looking for. And if what I what I'm holding in my mind is not what I find in the field. It can take me a lot longer to start making those connections. Whereas I find that with these illustrations, there's a, a certain level of beautiful abstraction that occurs that I can look at the plants around me and begin going, oh, well, does that have a square stem or a round one? Or as I'm feeling something, these leaves feel a little bit bristly. Where have I encountered that? And it really makes working through my own interaction with the natural world to forage an easier process. And I really like the way that that's laid out as opposed to some field guides that are very description heavy with no pictures or others that are very photograph heavy and then getting this very like static image of what I should be finding in my mind. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad that, that you appreciate it. And the plant maps were something that I felt were lacking in the world. So like you said, there's great photos out there and there's also a lot of really wonderful word descriptions. I have a pretty good wild food library, you know, or, or foraging field guide library and the books are lacking these visual aids. So part of the vision about creating this book was that I would have Wendy, the illustrator, work with me and capture the plants exactly when I felt the viewer would need to see them and also as they progress through time. So, and the clues that you would be looking for at those different times. And that's kind of, I feel like what you're talking about, so that there's an unfolding, there's a journey that you get to go on with the plant. Um, and that was really an intense collaboration between the artist and I. You know, she has amazing skill to produce these drawings and I was directing exactly what she was drawing and when and how so that the viewer, as an educator, as I am the educator, you know, teaching this uh, foraging and identification for years, I could see what the student needs to see to know that she or, you know, he has the right plant. So these plant maps are all about that hard core work in there, you know, hard, like how would you say, scrutiny, so that you as a viewer, as a reader, are empowered to go out there and say, I know I have this now. I've got all the clues. It matches up. And so from, I feel like it was, it was filling a niche that was missing from the literature on field guides and foraging. So I, I thank you for saying that. Yeah, I feel like the, the visuals are huge, huge strengths in empowering people to get out there and meet the plants. And I also like the layout for these plant maps, the use of bolding in certain places to draw the eye to descriptions, as well as the use of botanical Latin throughout. Thank you. Yes, that was a lot of a lot of detailing that uh, <laughs> that actually worked. It's an unbelievable amount of minutia, as you probably can imagine. And so being the orchestrator of this project that you're appreciating it means a lot because you know it was really deeply considered and choreographed so to speak it was you know heavily worked well, and i just randomly opened to a page as we're sitting here discussing and you have a description of sugar contents of fruits by percentage as someone who's been a brewer and a vinter in the past, you know, that's important information to have if I want to try to calculate what my, my starting sugar content is going to be in order to ferment to a, a given ABV by the time I'm done. Sure. I mean, this had to do with my celebration of water kefir sodas because I'm, I'm a heavy fermenter. And so wherever I could, I plug in the fermentation aspect of 
food prep in the book. And the water kefir sodas have a a good placement. You know, they've got whatever they have, three or four pages or more. And part of that is knowing your fruit and what you're working with, because I was trying to explain that, again, it's giving the reader the skills to be able to brew properly. And so part of that is understanding sugar content of fruit, because you're custom, you know, you're customizing the menstruum, so to speak, or the, the fluid in which you're going to be fermenting. You need to know the level of sugar that it needs. So water kefir inspired that sugar content a fruits chart. You remind me that I need to get some water kefir and dairy kefir grains. When I was doing my teacher training in Oregon, one of my fellow students brought a bunch of kefir with her. And we kind of had a kefir party one night because a lot of us had never had it before. And it was just a delightful experience. And there were new recipes being made while we were there. And it was just, it was pretty awesome. It's so awesome. I mean, the thing to do right now is if someone's got water water kefir grains and they're able to tap trees like a maple tree. There's a recipe in there that I love for the maple sap kefir soda. So you take fresh maple sap and you boil it down just enough. And again, it describes it in the book. So you have the appropriate sugar content to feed the kefir grains. So you make this pretty much fresh, freshly harvested maple sap kefir soda. And it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's a, it's you know something you can make for a few weeks out of the year because you know then the, the maple sap is over, so you don't you know then of course you can sweeten your kefir sodas with maple syrup, but it's not the same as taking the sap, reducing it just enough so the sugar content is high enough to feed the kefir grains, and then you get this this beautiful, very uh, time specific and regionally specific soda. Now I'm getting thirsty. We've covered so much, and I appreciate everywhere that you've taken me today, Dina. Is there anything else in this interview that you'd like to share with the listeners? Just that I would really, you know, love to see more people get out there and, and uh, you know, engage with their ecosystem, learn the plants that they have, get into the kitchen, you know, producing the food that feeds them or their friends and family. It's the same thing we've been saying all 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 this interview, but that's a little condensed comment. And I encourage everyone who's interested in this, you know, pick up a copy of Dina's book. It's a great thing. I sit with my children. I've looked through it because the pictures are bright and colorful and they're one of those nice things to just sit with my kids and look at. You know, my son is just beginning to read, but that he can begin associating these different plants with what he sees in the book. And, you know, we're working on sight words and things that he can begin reading. And it's, it's a great experience as a family to do it. So thank you for creating such a wonderful book. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. And thanks for having me on the show and for spreading the words that you spread on your podcast. Awesome. Thank you. And that was Dina Falcone, author of Foraging and Feasting. It is, as I mentioned in the episode, one of the most beautiful books I've held in recent years, and I highly recommend it as part of your wild food toolkit. Find out more about her and the book at botanicalartspress.com. As usual from an interview, I walk away with more thoughts that build and expand my repertoire as a permaculture practitioner. The first of those is that I'm adapting the recipes from the book into a series of lessons to use in my own cooking to teach my children a variety of basic formulas so they can be prepared to cook with whatever they have on hand, whether wild, grown from the garden, or purchased from market. That leads to the moment that Dina and I talked about master skills. Cooking is definitely something that I think that everyone should learn to some degree. To that, we also include foraging. Expanding that list further, I would also add the ability to create fire, make tools, build, whether that's with wood or stone, and permaculture design. 
This is a very basic beginning list, but I wonder what you would add based on where you live and what you do. What are the basic master skills you would teach to build a permanent community? One that truly cares for Earth, the individuals, and the culture you create. I also wonder how teaching those skills now to interested adults and children can influence the way we live in the short and the long term. Will we find greater personal and community freedom by having more self-reliance? How will that change the culture that we create and live in? I'd like to hear your ideas. Get in touch. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Call 717-827-6266. Or if you prefer, write to me. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also leave a comment in the show notes for this episode, send a tweet to at PermacultureCST, or join in the conversations on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Permaculture Podcast. From here, a few class announcements. Trad Cotter contacted me about an event he's teaching at the end of the month. If you're near Keswick, Virginia, April 24th through the 26th, 2015, join him along with Mark Jones and Ethan Levesque for a course called Cultivating Kingdom Fungi, Mushrooms for People and Planet. More information about this is at sharondalefarm.com forward slash workshops. Ben Weiss and Wilson Alvarez begin teaching a new permaculture design course in an urban environment in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, also starting that same weekend. You can find information about this course on Facebook by searching for Downtown Harrisburg Permaculture Course or through the link in the show notes. Ben and Will are also looking for scholarship sponsors for this event. Contact susk.permaculture at yahoo.com if you would like to donate. And again, that email address is in the show notes. Finally, as I draw this to a close, this show depends on your ongoing support to stay on the air. Though it looks like I'll be moving to a full-time job this summer, as my life now requires that I have an income that can support a family, I'm going to do everything possible to keep the show going and continue to release new episodes and remain a resource for anyone who takes the time to email, call, or write a letter. You can help me keep going by using the PayPal link on the front page of the show at thepermaculturepodcast.com to make a one-time direct contribution. Or, if you'd like to give on an ongoing basis, you can become a recurring member via Patreon at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. While you're there, you can find out the benefits of becoming a recurring donor. Wherever I go, know that I am here with you, wherever your journey takes you. And until the next time, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.